people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello, welcome to Twelve Rules for What. My name is Sam. And Alex is here as well. And in this episode, we are going to be talking to Barnaby Rain, who is an intellectual historian, writing a PhD at Columbia University, and a writer, thinker, activist more generally. This episode is about anti-Semitism. Of course, this is something we've talked about a huge number of times in various different ways across the podcast. It's perhaps the kind of the single form of racism that most typifies the historical far right. And so we talk about how that has changed in the contemporary period, whether or not anti-Semitism is still such a useful underway of understanding the far right, and how the idea of anti-Semitism is being used to attack the left and anti-colonial movements more generally. So hope you enjoy the episode and see you soon. I was thinking about this when we were preparing the episode because we were we're about the we're talking about the far right, but I, I'm I'm not sure it's possible to disentangle. I don't know, yeah. if, but maybe this is a question we can ask: is whether we, yeah. we can distinguish a left and a far right, or a left and a right anti-Semitism, uh, or whether that's even useful in thinking about it as a as a whole. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to I'd like to talk about that. If, yeah. Okay, great. Well, we can we can. Let's start there. Let's start with uh, the distinction between left and right anti-Semitism. What is that distinction? Does it matter? Um, what are the different forms of anti-Semitism we see appearing on the left and the right? And how do they relate to the overall ideas of the left and the right? Well, I think it's telling that the discussion of anti-Semitism in recent years has been preoccupied first in France with the concern with the Islamo-Gauchistes and the uh, ostensibly violent youth of the banlieue, and then migrating to uh, Britain in the uh, uh, panic around Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party, and then to America around the squad um, of uh, relatively left-wing uh, members of Congress, um, has been a panic concerned heavily with the left. Um, that's been the ground zero for my interest in thinking through how that panic got constructed by a lot of racists uh, on the right and the centre, uh, claiming suddenly to be the protectors of a minority. My interest is how that bizarre constellation happened. And I, and I don't really take them at their word. Um, but so the, the starting point uh, of that interest might be to stress that there is an uh, illusion or a deception in the construction of a left-wing anti-Semitism, which focuses on the anti-Semites claim to have a kind of anti-elitist politics. So which says, oh, look, racism normally punches down, anti-Semitism punches up, claims to punch up, or if we say it really punches up, then we buy into the anti-Semitic caricature of Jews, which often happens, I think, uh, revealingly. Um, and so that means that it's a distinctly left-wing form of, of prejudice. Um, this is very, very shoddy thinking. Uh, there are lots of forms of right-wing politics that claim to be, or that uh, really believe they are, anti-elitist. Um, you only have to look at discourses about union barons uh, holding the country to ransom, um, or indeed, much of the contemporary conservative construction of uh, an elite, uh, a metropolitan elite, an intellectual elite, an elite of university professors or judges or politicians who hold back the real will of the people, uh, a real people, as Nigel Farage said uh, on the night of the Brexit referendum, um, uh, uh, frustrated by a small elite. In other words, talk about elites is not the property of the left. The distinctive dividing line is that the right talk about elites separates uh, the, the elite they imagine from uh, the logic of social relations, from uh, class relations um, and, and other kinds of social relations of power. Um, so that where if the left constructs an elite, it's, it's those people who, who, who motor capital accumulation um, or who at least are its beneficiaries of, of an ultimately impersonal process. Um, the right's elites are cultural and political figures um, uh, who might fight that uh, real elite, but uh, have some cultural capital to do so. Um, Anti-Semitism is a very good example then of a right-wing anti-elitism, which says uh, you hate George Soros or you hate the Rothschilds, not because they're bankers and billionaires, but because they're Jews. Um, and that makes them as bankers and billionaires somehow different from other Aryan or whatever it is, bankers and billionaires. Um, so we have to think about the, 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 the division within nominally anti-systemic or anti-elitist politics 
uh, this is even leaving open the question how the left should engage with, with, with questions of elitism and anti-elitism, which I'm sure we'll come to. Um, that is to say that the, the, the complex relationship between focusing on uh, concrete individuals and abstract social processes. But within uh, antagonistic uh, politics that claims to punch up, there is actually a divide between left and right. And it's important to grasp that because one of the important features of the right in a moment of crisis and in a moment of angst and anxiety is not just kind of technocratic optimism that all problems can be solved by the masters of the universe, but a claim to articulate a distinctly right-wing opposition to the supposed masters of the universe. And that's central to culture war politics in Britain now and in America, the, the, you know, the, the Tory attacks on the National Trust, uh, uh, supposedly representing a cultural elite who want us to talk about slavery where good honest British people know that we should never talk about that or we should celebrate it or whatever. Um, so I think that there is a revealing uh, illusion, or as I say, deception, in the claim that uh, anti-Semitism is a left-wing form of prejudice, which is a claim that you see widespread on, for example, the labor right and people like Jonathan Friedland uh, will, will trot out these kinds of arguments against Corbyn in those years. Um, that said, I think there is a difference between the forms of anti-Semitism. There can be differences between the forms of anti-Semitic thinking that appear on the right and the forms that can appear on the left, the evidence is that it's pretty evenly spread across the political spectrum. As I say, I don't think it can ever be an authentically left-wing thing, and I think it actually is authentically right-wing in its culturalism, uh, in its construction of the elites that it despises. Um, but there is, I think, a, a distinctive feature of its appearance on the left today, which I'm sure we'll get into more, uh, which is that it takes the form of a kind of pessimism, uh, I think fitted to uh, much of the broad pessimism of our epoch, which is to say not, um, uh, you don't need to get rid of capitalists, you should just get rid of Jews, they're the real enemy, which might have been the logic of the 1930s, but rather, um, or, or, you know, or, 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 Jew, or, or capitalism is a particularly Jewish problem, which you see in someone like Keynes, for example, um, the, the problem of accumulation uh, is, is a cultural problem uh, of, of the Jewish nature, um, Keynes thinks, among other things. Instead of that kind of optimism about the ease of getting rid of Jews and so getting rid of a problem, uh, I think today a lot of anti-Semitism uh, that can appear on the left takes the form of a kind of grimacing pessimism. You can't change anything because they will never let you. There's some kind of ominous conspiracy um, of total power outside the normal structure of politics, which is the Illuminati or is the New World Order or is in some of these forms, uh, uh, you know, the Jewish conspiracy of Jewish bankers or whatever. Um, so I think that there's a particular form of pessimism um, of resigned um, tragedy which can appear as a, uh, as a form of thinking among people who might be recruited to the left, who are upset and angry, and who might sometimes think of themselves as part of the left. Um, and then, of course, there are the other forms where you can draw anti-Semitic conclusions from your uh, anti-Zionism, which, of course, you know, I think people should be anti-Zionist. Um, uh, so, so there are other routes by which people on the left can get to anti-Semitic thinking that are different from the routes by which people on the right get to anti-Semitic thinking. And it's important to trace those routes while clarifying that anti-Semitic thinking is always and importantly a kind of right wing thinking. And that's not just a political uh, point scoring exercise. It's crucial to understand what the right is in our moment. If you think of anti-elitist thinking as necessarily left wing, then you don't understand much about the history of the right and you're not well placed to face the right in our kind of moment of neoliberal crisis. In your in discussion of pe pessimism is really important. And I want to kind of push back on it very slightly by uh, looking at some of the forms of far right pessimism that attend anti-Semitism as well. So this is not necessarily uh, the conventional right, it's not the conservative right, it's not even the kind of UKIP rights, people beyond that, um, where at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, there was a um, there were there were there were two forms in which anti-Semitism Kind of took off, and I think it's kind of important that there's a history here, right? That that, that uh, you know the, the coronavirus pandemic mutates or changes the form of anti-Semitism as well. Um, so the the there were two forms of anti-Semitism that were kind of really striking on um, in in the really far right uh, amongst kind of neo-Nazi groups, but also amongst the uh, the more kind of um, yeah street movement based uh, piece of the far right. And they were at once, simultaneously, often believed by the same person at the same time, that on the one hand, the coronavirus pandemic was the only thing that um, could possibly uh, transform the uh, global order. That is, it was the only thing that could um, undo the global apparent uh, kind of domination of, of Jews uh, over the world and so on, right? Um, and therefore, it was kind of, uh, there were these, these memes in which um, the uh, kind of ultimate control of, of um Jewish world government, which is kind of a right-wing conspiracy, of course, um, was um, undermined by uh, this, this virus. And that was a source of extraordinary hope momentarily. And then 
at the same time believed by the same people. There was also the conspiracy that the coronavirus was in fact created by Israel, right? Like, or created by the Jews in some sense, launched upon the world uh, at the same time as as, as being uh, kind of um, the that world's downfall. In a very short space of time, both these conspiracy theories um, were dissolved into a um, very stable kind of um, on. Uh, kind of a, as if as if nothing had happened, right? So they were they were like, okay, well, actually, um, this entire event, which seemed to pull at these kind of tensions of, of, of our conspiracy theories, actually, it, it was nothing. Nothing at all happened. No, there can never be any kind of victory. And I think what we're seeing increasingly on the, on the really far right is that that assertion that there can never be any victory is producing uh, form, forms of, um, kind of terroristic violence that are kind of sporadic, desperate, and so on. So I think it's interesting that there's like a there's a left-wing pessimism, but I think there's also a right-wing pessimism in the form of anti-Semitism. Um, yes, I think that pessimism is a crucially defining feature of our epoch, which has small bursts of exception to it. Um, uh, many on the left in Britain felt optimistic for the first time during the Corbyn years in America, during some of Bernie Sanders' presidential campaigns in South America, uh, the, the pink tide experiments. Um, th there have been moments in different parts of the world uh, that um, have, have challenged this, so one shouldn't get too carried away. But I think that there was a, an epochal change in the 1970s. It's the object of some of the academic work I'm trying to write. Um, and uh, you know what Mark Fisher sometimes called the cancellation of the future. Um, and I'm interested in, in, in tracing elsewhere how that took place. Um, but I think that the end of, of modernity, of modernism, um, of, of an optimism about the ability to transform the world by human agency uh, had enormous effects on the kinds of politics that resulted. Uh, and I read uh, resurgent anti-Semitism in that context. And so one would expect that form of pessimism to uh, be reflected on the left and the right. Uh, and it's a meaningful difference from the anti-Semitism of the 1930s, which is a kind of optimistic politics, which says we can solve problems if we get rid of Jews. My claim is that now the more common impetus is to say we can't solve problems because of Jews. Um, and a good way of thinking about this is as a kind of, of a form of alienation. Um, so think about the classic arguments about alienation in uh, Ludwig Feuerbach where God uh, as alienated consciousness serves to say that thing which I can't do uh, I imagine a kind of big supernatural being which can do. So I can't get across this river. I imagine some big giant in the sky who can get across the river and know what's on the other side. And then the idea is, that, you know, as, as society develops uh, and you can get across the river, um, that, that this being becomes uh, much grander than just a big giant who gets across a river, but instead a kind of omnipotent uh, a being who is invested in capacities that human beings can't master. That is the invention, the projection of the Jew in a lot of anti-Semitic discourse, that totally powerful being who makes up for my own sense of powerlessness. But unlike Feuerbach's projection about God, where it's a positive projection of also all of these qualities that I like about myself and wish had more power, um, uh, God is the kind of perfect uh, representation of them. Instead, this is a negative projection for a, for a miserable age. All of those qualities which I dislike about myself, um, uh, the Jew is the unchaining, the total empowerment of those qualities. Um, so, you know, Fanon in, in Black Skin, White Masks has a very good treatment of this, that uh, the white man who's scared of his own uh, uh, violent sexual domination imagines a, a, a total uh, image of, a, of the black man who's, uh, who, who's sexually um, predatory and the white man who's scared of his own uh, uh, money grubbing and, and, and desperation to make ends meet imagines the Jew who is this total representation of greed. Um, so these different ethnic ciphers speak to different uh, negative projections out of different anxieties that a civilization has. It uses each uh, cipher uh, to speak to its different anxieties. These are pessimistic anxieties at the point at which it is a claim like, um, I can't change anything um, uh, because there's an omnipotent being uh, that, that has the power that, that I don't imagine myself having. Uh, so I don't imagine that I could uh, uh, change the decisions of politicians anymore, um, certainly not get rid of them. Uh, but there's this conspiracy, which I do invest with all that power, which meets at Bilderberg or whatever. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a form of conspiratorial thinking oriented around Jews. Um, but uh, its orientation around Jews is one form that it can take. You speak of uh, a need for a critical theory of anti-Semitism, which you kind of elaborate in your essay earlier this year, Jewphobia Now. Um, you briefly mentioned it a little bit, but what is your, how do you start constructing that theory? And how do you set it in opposition to, I suppose, the hegemonic form of anti, theory of anti-Semitism that we 
have seen in the last few years or the last decade? Wow, that's a big question. Yeah, I'm all about the big questions right now. Yeah. I'm delighted. I'm delighted because, you know, I have lots to say about it. Um, but you should just interrupt me and shut me up if I am uh, uh, get too excited about it. Um, because, um, uh, okay, so um, firstly, the, um, the, 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 well, let's just start with the, 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 the mission of a critical theory of anti-Semitism today, which is to explain two phenomena uh, whose convergence I think is uh, interesting, which is both rising anti-Semitism. Uh, we have survey evidence um, and we also see, of course, uh, rising rates of, uh, in terms of survey evidence in terms of attitudes. And we also see around the world and we also see uh, anti-Semitic attacks. Um, uh, and we also see the, the, the reappearance of various anti-Semitic tropes in, in politics from Hungary to the United States. Um, and at the same time, a moral panic about anti-Semitism as a burning problem of our age from people who are from the liberal mainstream or the right invested in all kinds of racism. Why do they care about Jews? Um, and, and a moral panic which tends not to target the most obvious instances of the rise of anti-Semitism. Uh, the, the people in Britain authoring the moral panic are happy to meet with Viktor Orban, um, but targets the, the left. So how to understand these two things at once? And, and my claim is that although they don't respond to the same, although the moral panic isn't really directly a response to anti-Semitism, they both respond to a certain kind of crisis. So the way that I narrate contemporary anti-Semitism is by thinking about three dates, 1989, 9-11 and 2008. I think about what it means to exist at a historical moment after those three dates, overdetermined by those three dates. So you've got the end of history, the impossibility of thinking comprehensive social transformation. You've then got, after a few years of, uh, of technocratic peace and prosperity as the language of politics, um, 9-11, which says actually you can have your fundamental conflicts again. It's just they're cultural rather than social. It's burghers facing off against burghers. Um, and then in 2008, there's the need again for a politics of the economy, which had been uh, foreclosed and, and, and you know, Gordon Brown claimed to have abolished boom and bust. Uh, uh, the economy was a zone of complete consensus um, in mainstream politics. Um, and so in that conjuncture, um, you've got the impossibility of thinking total social transformation. It just leads to the gulag. It's been ruled out. It was the politics of the 20th century that's dead. You've got the need to think politics culturally or the, 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 the culture becoming a central language of politics um, in, in the increasing politics around migration as well as around Islamophobia. Um, it's a question of, of, of cultural loyalty. Um, and you've got the need to have a, have a language of politics that can talk about jobs and uh, finance and so on. And so George Soros, the Jewish banker whose problem is cultural and who can be a problem without you needing to imagine getting rid of the whole of the banking system, um, which seems uh, uh, impossible after the end of history, is the kind of perfect villain for that scenario. And so this is why I say it represents a form of pessimism, um, an end of history, uh, uh, anti-elitism, and also crucially, uh, a culturalism, um, an anti-elitism uh, different from the left uh, forms of anti-elitism. Uh, and this is something that's missed, I think, by left analyses like those of Moish Pestone, um, who, 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 um, uh, who sees the problem as heavily the focus on concrete individuals rather than abstract process of social domination, which I think is an important uh, thing to point out. Um, but that it's both a pessimistic and an individualistic form of anti-elitism and also a culturalist form of anti-elitism that makes sense in the context of the politics of the war on terror. Uh, and that is, I think, its interesting connection uh, to Islamophobia. So the difference between that kind of thinking and the, the so-called new anti-Semitism analysis, uh, what I call the new anti-anti-Semitism, because it's a distinctive current, uh, a huge uh, variety of, um, of books and articles. Um, uh, I think the term is coined by Robert Wistrich, but, but it has an enormous um, uh, uh, breadth of, of um, arguments about David Hirsch in Britain, um, is that uh, this is an analysis which tries to ask how anti-Semitism is produced by ideological tendencies and crisis within bourgeois society, rather than being the uh, birthed by the outsiders to bourgeois society, rather than being the disease of the radical opponents of that society, which comes organically from those radical opponents, uh, which is the way of making anti-Semitism a problem of the left, a problem of uh, the colonized, a problem of Palestinians and so on. 
Um, and I'm interested in that construction, that will to read anti-Semitism in that way, which cuts us off from the whole tradition of critical theory, which asked whether in its Marxist form, in people like Adorno and Horkheimer, or well outside its Marxist form, in, in someone like Hannah Arendt, which asked how does the kind of social world that we inhabit can produce this phenomenon? That's the kind of elementary question of a, of a critical theory of ideology. Um, it, that question is cut off now by saying, no, no, it, it's not actually the governing logics of the social world that produce this kind of thinking, which is what my analysis tries to um, sort of venture some hypotheses about. It's instead just some bad people on the margins. Uh, I think that's an appeal. I think the appeal of that kind of thinking is very telling because it is um, the need for a legitimating language of opposition to the margins, the need for a, a language of uh, opposition to the radicals um, in a, an age of a kind of anti-racist racism. So in an age in which you want to find a way to hate the colonized and to hate brown people, um, uh, to hate the, the residents of the banlieue outside Paris, um, uh, and can no longer deploy simply racist languages that say uh, these people are the enemies of a white world order. Um, but instead in this, so the history that matters here is not just 1989, 2008, 2008, it's the history of the Holocaust, uh, a significantly delegitimizing um, overt racial uh, language, and then struggles against Jim Crow and anti-colonial and, and the civil rights struggle in America and anti-colonial struggles around the world, um, all uh, winning various kinds of tragic half victories in delegitimizing over overt um, racist language um, so that racist politics in a world order that remains structured by racial hierarchies, you know, look at the wealth gap for black and white people in the United States or whatever, um, uh, those racial hierarchies can no longer be defended in overtly racist terms and anti-Semitism makes the perfect, perfect ideological uh, reflex in that setting because it allows you to construct the wretched of the earth uh, brown people around the world um, uh, and, and also the radical left, their defenders, um, as threatening to a civilized white world order where the civilized white world order is defined as anti-racist, as cosmopolitan, as having its protected minority that it looks after. I've made the analogy to the way that Jim Crow talked about white women as threatened by black men. And so power likes to construct itself. This is the basis of patriarchy, right? Power constructs itself, not as a violent threat to the dominated, but as the protector of the dominated, carving out a certain group among the dominated whom it protects from the savage hordes. And so in that context, uh, uh, if the history of 1989, 2008 is a useful history, I think, for understanding um, resurgent anti-Semitism today, the history of the Holocaust, civil rights, anti-colonial struggles are also very important for understanding a resurgent kind of uh, need to construct uh, a protected minority uh, as your um, battering ram in order to prosecute an essentially racist campaign, um, which is how I read a lot of the new anti-Semitism stuff, uh, defense of white society um, and the conscription of Jews to that panic. Um, and I think that in a moment of crisis of neoliberalism, um, uh, it becomes all the more bolstered because uh, you know, we had in recent years, Labour MPs saying things like anti-capitalism is essentially anti-Semitic. Um, uh, the headmaster of a private school complaining that uh, uh, opposition to the dominance of private schools in British public life was equivalent to the Nazis complaining about the dominance of Jews. The, the, the convenience of anti-Semitism now becomes not only that, it's, uh, that it can be connected to anti-imperialism uh, through nebulous uh, uh, conflations around Israel and Zionism, uh, but also that it is crucially a, a form of supposedly economic anti-elitism. And so you can, again, uh, so you're not, so, so, the, so, so if you were 10 years ago defending imperialism by saying, look, the anti-imperialists really hate Jews, now you can also defend capitalism by saying, look, the anti-capitalists really hate Jews. Uh, and I think that's appealing in a moment in which the defense of neoliberal, post-colonial class society, racist society uh, has to work through an anti-racist language uh, because of these half victories of anti-fascism and anti-racism in the 20th century. One of the most kind of peculiar ways in which this happens uh, on the kind of conservative uh, to far right is you get people um, who strayed too close to kind of the, the race and IQ discourse, um, uh, who are often white, um, claim it when they are charged that they are white supremacists they're like no 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 actually i'm not a white supremacist because i freely admit uh that the data shows that you know ashkenazi jews have like higher iqs than than, than white people and therefore i cannot be um uh, an anti-racist oh, sorry sorry I, I therefore cannot be a racist because I, I do not put myself at the very top of this hierarchy um given that i'm i'm not jewish i think this is a really uh interesting uh historical story um and i wonder if i can add kind of one more thing or kind of ask about how one more thing relates to it um there's a phrase uh, in kind of anti-Semitism research right, that, that 
uh, anti-Semitism is, is kind of the rumor about the Jews, right? It's a kind of a, it's a kind of a, a collection of ideas that kind of circulate seemingly without origin uh, through society. And of course, your explanatory account makes it clear that they don't have like no origin, but that they are um, systematically distributed rather. So I think it's, um, and, and our society is, is rapidly transforming, um, partially because the ties that bonded people together before the neoliberal era have been shredded by neoliberalism, but also partially because there are new forms of networked connection that operates broadly through uh, the internet and other kinds of digital like, platforms um, that have meant that people are rapidly reconnecting in all different kinds of ways that they were not connecting before. And so I'm kind of wondering, do you think there is anything to this kind of media history of anti-Semitism? Do you think that that has any role to play in this kind of critical, critical thinking theory of anti-Semitism? Um, in that there, there are there are forms of um, yeah kind of connectedness in society uh, that uh, are novel. Um, a few things to say about that. Firstly, let me just make a comment about your IQ example. Uh, of course, similar kinds of arguments have long been made about East Asians, um, and I think that in the face of a panic about the rise of China, a lot of the language of increasing Sinophobia reflects uh, anti-Semitic frames um, uh, as. Uh, 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 an anti-elitism, supposedly, uh, increasingly, um, uh, you know, a politics that claims to be punching up because the Chinese are so clever and powerful. Um, and so it's important for the, for, for the left to remember that, that a dividing line between the left and the right is not only that the left claims to punch up and the right claims to punch down, but that right forms of right-wing thinking can involve the construction of ethnic ciphers um, in place of thinking about the dynamism of social relations. And that's very important because it's an intrinsically anti-universalist politics. It's not a politics of emancipation for everyone from structures of power and domination, which even which, which pervert all of us, even uh, you know, the, 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 the rich and famous. I mean, you know, watch Prince Andrew's interview uh, uh, justifying his likely complicity in child sex abuse um, and, and see how uh, class society perverts uh, the, the, the social norms of its most powerful as well as uh, destroying the lives of its powerless. So against the politics of universal emancipation that targets social structures, uh, right-wing thinking, one form of right-wing thinking, uh, which has in common with much of the right, it's kind of anti-universalism, is to say there are particular ethnic ciphers who are the problem, particular types. Uh, there's something about the Chinese, they're calculating and clever. There's something about the Jews, they're calculating and clever. Um, and the, the, the supposed punching up, oh, look, they're, they're so clever, so I can't be racist. That's not, of course, how racism works. It is the construction. Uh, Brian Clogg, the great uh, uh, current scholar of anti-Semitism, says anti-Semitism is not the hatred of Jews as Jews, which is how it's sometimes discussed, but the hatred of Jews as not Jews. That is to say, the construction of, a, of an imagined image of the Jew, which is what racism does. Uh, I, I've compared uh, Brian saying that to, uh, much to his delight, I think, because uh, Brian was pleased with the comparison to, to a letter of Antonio Gramsci's in 1931, uh, <laughs> where Gramsci castigates his sister for imagining a fantasy world of Jews. Gramsci says, who are these Jews of whom you speak? Um, so it's that construction of a fantasy, which is the key move, not the claim that the, the fantasy I've constructed are people who are stupid or whatever, you know, that that might be the, the construction of black people in uh, American slave, uh, slavery, um, but it's not the only possible uh, construction of the cipher. So uh, I just wanted to say that about the IQ conversation. Uh, and then in terms of the proliferation of these types, I do think there's important work to be done on uh, social media, for example, um, as a vehicle for uh, the confirmation of people's desires to feel less lonely um, which is importantly double-edged. Um, one of the ways in which, think even of a classic analysis of the media, like uh, the, the Noam Chomsky's, for example, um, pointing out that one of the kind of alienating effects of uh, the, the traditional media, print and broadcast media, is that you have your sense of what's going on in the world, you turn on the TV or open a newspaper to find out what's going on in the world, and you have reported back to you the sense of what's going on in the world uh, honed by a pretty narrow class of people who tend to work in the media um, and who might live on the same streets as the politicians they're interviewing and send their kids to the same schools. And so the picture of the world that you have reported back to you uh, as the mainstream, as the accepted one, uh, it, it might be quite divergent from yours and you then feel quite lonely and social media undercuts uh, much of that effect. And it can undercut that effect to good or ill. It can allow uh, various kinds of unacceptable uh, tropes uh, to spread. And they might be good unacceptable tropes, opposition to various real forms of power, uh, or they might be bad ones. This is a disagreement I've had with a great friend of mine with whom I've had a, a debate about anti-Semitism, who I think writes very thoughtful, excellent stuff on this, uh, called Cy Englert. And he posits the agency of the state 
um, as central, uh, in fact, as the cause in understanding uh, uh, contemporary anti-Semitism, uh, where he reads Western states uh, through their support for the state of Israel and through their particular reading of the Holocaust as a kind of projecting a very changed image of Jews. Um, and I just think that in order to answer the question how lots of people take up this panic, we need to do the old work of ideology critique, which asks how certain kinds of ideas about Jews become intuitive to people rather than having to be consciously planted by a nefarious agent. Um, that is what ideology critique used to think. And so uh, those ideas might proliferate on social media, um, uh, uh, but I also don't want to make social media the omnipotent agent, which is a lot of the kind of, I think, very shallow thinking that you get uh, uh, these days, which, which which wants to identify simple agents in order to get away from thinking about structural problems. So the, 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 the dynamic of uh, much of uh, elite liberalism in panic over the last few years has been rather than thinking about the uh, structural problems that made people vote for Donald Trump, you imagine it was a Russian conspiracy, rather than thinking about the structural problems that made people vote for Brexit, you imagine it was Cambridge Analytica, um, and, and social media has become the latest villain in that. Uh, and so I want to think, that's very good thinking about this. My friend and comrade Richard Seymour uh, writes very well about this. I want to think about social media uh, carefully in its contribution uh, to these problems without making it the omnipotent agent, just as I want to think about the state uh, as Sai does. Uh, uh, I want to think about it carefully as, as, uh, as contributing to this panic uh, without thinking of it as a single nefarious agent and everyone else as, as passive. Yeah, we've, we've written about this on social media, the, the, the kind of the idea that to to stop racism in society, stop anti-Semitism, you just have to ban or shadow ban the right people on Twitter or delete the right people's Facebook accounts and then all this yeah. kind of will disappear, which is yeah. oh, obviously well, silly. Well, there's something else about that, which is, again, a very telling aspect of the panic is the focus now on anonymous accounts on social media, which, mm -hmm. is, uh, which is entirely of a piece with what I'm saying about a kind of elite uh, conception of the little people as the problem. Uh, so that rather than asking the question, how does racism get spread by the front page of most tabloid newspapers most days? How does racism get spread not just by tabloid newspapers, which liberals agree to dislike, but by 13 years of a Labour government constructing Muslims in the fifth column and building CCTV cameras in Muslim areas to, to spy on them, as we now know, and, and a preventive agenda to delegitimize them, uh, and then furthered by a supposedly liberal conservative government doing the same thing. Um, rather than asking those questions which traditional anti-racists asked, where anti-racism was understood as a radical project in the critique of the racial uh, uh, structural hierarchies that, that dominated uh, Western societies, instead uh, uh, anti-racism can now take the form of uh, uh, effectively a claim to be punching down, uh, a claim that the racists are uh, the oppressed of the world who are ignorant bigots, um, and that the masters of the universe are enlightened anti-racists. And that, I think, is, as I say, the, 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 the distinctive use of anti-racism in the defense of a racist world, uh, that kind of paradoxical thing. So, uh, as I say, you want to uh, uh, mistrust Muslims, you say no longer um, just that they're uncivilized. You say that as a, as, a, as a property of their being uncivilized, they hate Jews. Um, and I think that's reflected in uh, the, the language of social media villains, which says, uh, while we have lots of racist comment on social media from lots of famous people, the problem is uh, the anonymous accounts of someone in their mum's basement. And my point is there are lots of people in their mum's basements who are bigots. Um, but uh, the, the question that this discourse wants to cut off is the question how they got made that way, how they became bigots and what kind of social world made bigoted thinking intuitive to them. And that's the traditional question of critical theory, which the right wing and liberal panic doesn't want us to ask. I think that there's, I mean, I think that, that that's that's uh, very well stated. I think that that is exactly the, the question that needs to be um, asked. I want to kind of like, and, and the relationship of that to anti-Semitism, I think is very fraught, uh, precisely because like really existing anti-Semitism often on the far right, rather than this kind of spectrum of anti-Semitism or something. Um, because on the one hand, it seems to have an explanatory quality, anti-Semitism. On the other hand, it seems to have, be in some ways like against explanation. Or something, in that anti-Semitism is is a once a a, a good reason uh, that you can give, like oh the reason why my life is 
is bad, why I have personally failed, and so on. And I think the texture of there's a texture of kind of personal failure Absolutely. in society at the moment, rather than a kind Absolutely. of collective imp- uh, repression, which was in the 1930s. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, ta- you, you take uh, Sartre's classic essay on the portrait of an anti Semite, and this is his starting point. So I was literally going to quote you, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So there's passionate pride amongst the mediocre, and anti Semitism is an attempt to give value to mediocrity as such to create an elite of the ordinary. But on the other hand, I think there's like a, a kind of a non explanatory quality to anti Semitism. On the one hand, like there's a kind of a pleasure as you know, Dawn and Hawkeye, right? A pleasure in mindlessness. And there's, and there's like not an attempt to give an explanation of it, um, of, of the world, but to simply hate and feel the pleasure of hating or to obey and feel the pleasure of obedience. Now, that particular kind of last thing about like feeling the pleasure of obedience makes a lot of sense when you have a kind of, um, you know, kind of, as you were saying, like kind of elite that is essentially anti-Semitic, like in um, Germany in the 1930s, right? Like they have an anti-Semitic kind of state, an anti-Semitic, um, you know, party in the Nazis um, who are telling people to obey them. But as you point out, like, you know, that is no longer the case. The um, There was a kind of a, a, a kind of anti-racist racism to uh, elite culture today. And therefore, that like, thing of that way in which anti-Semitism is a kind of obedience is no longer quite as as, as clear. Um, and so, and what it appears to be instead is kind of the ultimate form of transgression, mm. right? Which is why you get, for example, uh, amongst a national action, which is this um, very uh, fairly small uh, kind of extreme neo-Nazi group uh, in the UK, um, who are kind of out of the norm of the British far right as well. Uh, who were um, emphatically and declaratively anti-Semitic. You know that they, they're like this is the kind of the uh, the kind of the principle of this action is that we can never go back. We never recuperate us. We are absolutely different from society. We're absolutely separate from it. Rather than we are its um, its kind of insist we are its uh, its its natural order or something like this. Right? It's kind of a there's kind of a, a, a real ambivalence there in, in in the in the way in which they constitute themselves with regards to society. This is all to say, what is the role of obedience and failure? And subjective feelings of, you know, um, uh, misery or in, uh, individualized feelings of misery in anti-Semitism today, and laying that groundwork for the um, psychological structures that allow anti-Semitism to to kind of blossom. Um, lots to say about that. Um, I think that uh, anti-Semitism is importantly today a way of answering the appeal of transgression in a moment that no longer believes in the possibility of real transgression. That is to say, um, uh, very similar to the election of Donald Trump. Um, uh, brilliant interviews uh, often with, with, with Trump supporters in the course of that election, uh, who would say there's a particularly, actually an excellent pass, um, package the Guardian made in West Virginia uh, among people who, some of the poorest parts of America who voted for Obama twice, um, and who would say clear-eyed, we know he's a billionaire, we know he's a corrupt New York billionaire, but he really pisses off all the other corrupt New York billionaires. So in other words, and, and they, were, they were speaking a much more realistic language than the journalists who were puzzled at how these poor people could be voting for a corrupt New York billionaire. They said, we're perfectly clear-eyed. And the Democrats came, uh, amazing in this package, and said, we're going to move Facebook headquarters to West Virginia or something. Um, and it was the kind of fanciful extreme of faith in the persistence of the established order, which was manifestly crumbling. Um, in a moment in which people didn't believe, as they might have done in the 1930s moment of crumbling to that established order, that there was a possibility of replacing it with an utterly different order. This is the end of history condition. So the best you can do is to give people a bloody nose. The best you can do is by saying the unsayable. And that's so much of the appeal of contemporary racism. It's claim to transgression, which the left will often point out is a, is a bizarre claim because actually most of our mainstream is very racist and it's not the case that the left rules us. But that's not the point. The point is that... Um, It is precisely that people want an apparent transgression that isn't really transgressive. They don't actually believe you can storm the Winter Palace anymore. They don't actually believe you can uh, abolish billionaires, um, but you can make them really uncomfortable um, uh, by challenging their disingenuous uh, uh, language of of, of cosmopolitan um, uh, multiculturalism in the wake of the Holocaust and anti-racist and anti-colonial and anti-fascist struggles. Um, so, so that is, I think, it's particularly a potent transgressive quality now. Um, I would also say something about the far right as an interesting index of this. Um, when Nick Griffin appeared, I think in 2009 on Question Time, uh, having won election to the European Parliament, uh, he was asked about historic anti-Semitism. And he said, I've taken a party which once was anti-Semitic and made it the only party that stood full square behind the state of Israel in its recent uh, devastation of Gaza. Um, a very good example of 
adapting a philo-Semitism precisely as a convenient wedge for broader racism, which is to say, look, I love Jews because it's the colonized, the wretched of the earth, the oppressed of the world who hate Jews. And so I'm the defender of Jews. Um, and that is a common theme across much of the far right, which is traded in its anti-Semitism for philo-Semitism. You saw recently a, a far right uh, member of the Australian uh, Senate, I think, um, uh, talking about a final solution for Muslims um, or for immigrants. Um, and when challenged on the language of, far right, of a final solution saying, you know, I couldn't possibly be anti-Semitic, I actually really love Jews. Um, a group of far-right thugs attacked uh, a socialist bookshop, the SWP's bookshop in Britain, Bookmarks, um, and uh, hurled abuse at these socialists that they were attacking as far-right thugs. Um, and one of the terms of abuse they hurled at them was, you're anti-Semites. Uh, how on earth does that happen? Well, I think it's just the kind of hard edge of a broader condition in which uh, the, liberals, the liberal center is not that different from these far-right thugs, actually, in constructing Jews as their uh, object of defense to, to give a kind of moral purity to their attack on the left and on uh, the oppressed of the world. So that's one feature on the far right. And at the same time, there is also an anti-Semitism that can co uh, coexist or that, that, that can um, uh, endure on the far right, as you say, national action is a good example. In, in the United States, uh, the far right has an interestingly uh, kind of balancing acts thing uh, between philo-Semitism and anti-Semitism all the time. Um, um, in part because the far right remembers a tradition of anti-Semitism which um, has otherwise faded or gone in interesting directions, which is the anti-Semitic duality that anti-Semites were opposed to both Rothschild, the Jewish banker who runs the world, and Trotsky, the Jewish revolutionary who wants to tear apart the world. And the distinctiveness of a social theory in a text like Mein Kampf, Hitler's Mein Kampf, is the claim, uh, you're wrong to think that there's capitalist power and working class opposition to it. That's the dominant social democratic framing in Germany. Instead, that if you see politics as a national tradition, which doesn't, which periodizes differently, right, which doesn't say there's a massive rupture with the birth of capitalism. There's national economy, whether it's good medieval Germans or good 19th century Germans. Um, and then there's this parasitic international which wants to destroy the nation. That parasitic international can take the form of uh, a red international uh, trying to tear apart uh, nations um, and trying to tear apart your loyalty to established communities, or a gold international under the dollar sign, under, under Rothschild. And these are the two Jewish forms of conspiracy against the nation. And so that can coexist today as an apparently anti-systemic politics on the far right, uh, which retains its anti-Semitism. Uh, one of the interesting questions to me is where that anti-Trotsky anti-Semitism has gone more broadly. You know, the far right still has it. Uh, you know, uh, George Soros is trying to flood America with migrants, just like the KKK read the civil rights movement as um, lots of black people in the streets who were too stupid in the view of the KKK to possibly be authoring the thing. So it must be a Jewish conspiracy. Jews don't have the numbers, blacks provide the numbers. Uh, Jew Jews organize this conspiracy to tear apart white society. That's the, that's the, um, the, the descendant of conspiracies about Rosa Luxemburg and Leon Trotsky as Jews trying to destroy the framework of the nation. That's still there on the far right today in, in stuff about Soros. Um, I think in, in the liberal center, uh, part of the uh, confusing kind of irony is that the charge anti-Semite wielded against uh, the left has taken the form uh, uh, that that charge Jew used to take, um, which is, you know, Edward Said used to describe himself as the last Jewish intellectual, uh, um, which is those people who were understood as a kind of nefarious conspiracy uh, trying to tear down uh, white society um, is now understood as, uh, as, as, a, as an anti-colonial and left-wing threat, which can sometimes be coded as an anti-Semitic threat. So the language that's used to describe anti-Semites in the political center sometimes reflects the traditional language used to describe Jews. I don't mean real anti-Semites, I mean the constructed projected image of anti-Semites as a threat from, say, people who want to boycott the state of Israel? The distinction between, between the national and the international as two aspects of um, politics rather than you know, the working class and, and the capitalists or something like this right, is, is very important. I think one of the ways in which it might become more important in the future and which it's kind of become um, important uh, amongst the global far right, so we're thinking about you know, Modi, Bolsonaro, and so on, um, is in the figure of, uh, of the, the problem, the kind of the predicament of climate change. Um, which is that the in these particular cases, uh, nature, a kind of national nature, a, a right to it, um, um, uh, like right to so kind of mining materials, um, right to drill the oil that is in the uh, the ground in in uh, Brazil, um, the right to uh, mining in uh, northeastern India, and so on, uh, is framed as a kind of a national nature that is concrete and specific, that is 
taken away from you by this faceless international uh, conspiracy of um, the UNF uh, CCC, right? Um, uh, or the um, you know international organizations that try and prevent people from um, developing the nature or using the nature that is already theirs. Um, of course, the conspiracy or the idea that um, the Jews are somehow separate from or unable to like, engage with or kind of be part of nature is you know a very long-standing um, idea. It's you find it in like Hegel, um, where he says you know, the Jews are not like kind of uh, of of nature properly. They're kind of kind of on top of it or kind of slide across it in some way. Um, and so I'm kind of wondering, how is it that you think that ideas of anti-Semitism might change or might transform uh, as climate change ramps up, becomes more of a problem? Um, or you know, is this too much like uh, kind of idle speculation? And uh, do we need to experience the event first before we can predict how it will be kind of reflected in, in forms of anti-Semitism? Well, you quote Hegel, uh, um, who you know, would certainly say that the Isle of Minerva flies at dusk and that this, that this, that this kind of speculates. It's funny that you quote Hegel and then say, do we need to wait for the event in order to retrospectively reflect on it, which is Hegel's claim at the start of the philosophy of right, famously. Um, so, you know, I, and that claim stands in a complicated relationship to the project of political radicalism, which doesn't just want to uh, look back, but look forward. Um, but on, in this case, I'm sympathetic to it. I uh, haven't thought before about this question you raise about how climate change will alter the logic of anti-Semitism. And it's a very interesting point you raise about uh, uh, Jews being contrasted to nature. This is, of course, important uh, in the German tradition uh, uh, more, more broadly, um, in, in readings of Herder, who has a complicated relationship to anti-Semitism, kind of one, one of the founders of modern uh, German nationalist thinking. Um, uh, the, the question of whether Jews can be part of the soil or uh, opposed to it as a um, uh, class force, you know, in the Marxist analysis of someone like Abraham Leon, um, a, a class force uh, slotted by what we now call racial capitalism into a place different from uh, peasantry and, um, and the farmers. Um, not totally historically accurate about the traditions of, say, Ashkenazi Jews in Eastern Europe. Um, uh, but much of the way that I understand Zionism is as an attempt to uh, transform Jews uh, by believing that anti-Semitic uh, uh, configuration, um, uh, projection, um, thinking the problem with Jews is they're detached from national soils. Um, they're not peasants and soldiers and farmers. They're bookish intellectuals and bookkeeping bankers. Um, and uh, we need to destroy the Jew as uh, we understand him to exist um, in uh, a ghost, one of the early Zionists said, merely, merely ghosts, um, uh, but, but by rendering them again in the image of actually uh, bourgeois nationalist modernity uh, um, uh, with a with a uh, a, a proper class structure, uh, Berachov, the supposedly Marxist Zionist, used to say, you know, we need to have a prop proper class structure to be a proper nation. Uh, and that includes then uh, bringing us back to the land and making us good sabras. Uh, um, so, so, so there is a lot of thinking about, the, a lot of thinking in the tradition of anti-Semitism and especially the tradition of Zionism um, about the problem of Jews being ostensibly counterposed to nature and the need to, to, to overcome that antinomy. Um, but I would think that more directly important in the time of climate change is going to be uh, the effects of climate change on politics. That is to say, rather than a construction of Jews as opposed to nature, um, the problem that uh, climate change is increasingly um, exacerbating the kind of brute pessimism of the epoch that I've been talking about, which is to say, uh, producing problems that in massively disrupt people's lives by rendering parts of the world increasingly uninhabitable, producing chains of refugees and migrants, um, uh, producing storms that, that, that interfere with people's ability to live their daily lives and, and floods and droughts and devastation. Um, in a world in which ceasing that humanly created process, I mean, this is what alienation is, ceasing that humanly created process of destruction, which is ongoing, seems impossible, seems unworkable. A cop can't even coherently agree a 1.5 degree limit on, on warming um, and make it happen, uh, it seems. Um, and so you need a form of politics capable of responding to the experience of crisis without actually averting the crisis, but finding, yes, scapegoats for it. Um, 
and, um, and ways of complaining about the experience of, of other people's power and your powerlessness that don't involve a real roadmap for getting rid of power and making you powerful, but instead say, uh, oh shit, there's a kind of unmovable conspiracy, a kind of demonic God. Um, and so in that sense, climate change, I think will exacerbate if we don't have a genuine climate politics capable of, uh, of, of grabbing the problem by its horns. And uh, uh, that is the problem of climate. Uh, uh, you know, instead we'll, we'll imagine some fantasy horns um, um, on, on some fantasy evil people where the function of those fantasies is not to provide an alternative roadmap for solving the problem, but is to uh, index the supposed unsolvability, insolubility of the problem. Um, that I think is really uh, a form of politics that we should be very wary about in uh, about its resurgence in a world of climate devastation, which isn't stopping, which is destroying people's lives. People are going to be angry at destroying their lives without much optimism. They can stop it. That's a kind of perfect breeding ground for anti-Semitism too. We wrote uh, almost exactly, well, not, not exactly, but we wrote something very close to this in the book. Uh, we wrote about ecofascism and then had to delete it because we couldn't find anyone who had said it. But uh, so if we'd had you on earlier, we could have cited you saying it. Uh, <laughs> well, but uh, you know, but here's, as you said, this is entirely conjecture. So you say you don't have anyone saying it. You know, I, I, I can't off the top of my head say, and maybe because there isn't anyone, you know, here's a, here's a right wing uh, climate realist or, or whatever they might call themselves. Um, um, uh, talking in this kind of way. Um, and I'm not saying I expect that amid climate change, uh, necessarily people are going to start coming along and saying it's the Jews who are causing climate change. I'm just saying it will be a breeding ground again, the experience of climate devastation for forms of politics that express people's powerlessness um, by inventing kind of omnipotent conspiracies. So even if those omnipotent conspiracies are not explicitly connected to the devastation of the climate, I think the experience of the devastation of the climate uh, will uh, exacerbate people's sense of a need to imagine uh, those ciphers um, uh, of demonic gods. Um, and not all ciphers of demonic gods are Jews uh, uh, by any means. And I think we have to be careful about saying that anti-Semitism provides a powerful frame that can then be deployed in other kinds of politics without saying that every kind of politics that follows this frame, I mentioned anti-Asian racism, for example, is anti-Semitic. Uh, that's a kind of conceptual colonialism, you know, in which everyone's secretly talking about Jews. I don't think they are, but sometimes they do talk about Jews in this frame. This is just, maybe I won't put this in, because this is just kind of like my own like pet theory about this. Um, so Pistone in the um, in National Socialism and Anti-Semitism, right, like discusses that there is a, um, a sense of unstoppability to financial to financial capital, that it kind of exists behind concrete capital, that it kind of pushes it forwards inexorably. And it seems like the connection there, which you've kind of identified as like pessimism, is almost exactly the same thing as might happen under conditions of climate change, right? That, that like the question, why can't we stop putting so much carbon in the atmosphere becomes not a question of like, why are there so many fossil fuel plants? Or what, what is the kind of concrete infrastructure of capital um, that is putting the concrete, the, the, the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? But why is it so, so unstoppable? So, un, why is it, in, in a sense, like unstoppable? Right. And so anti Semitism becomes kind of the figure of the thing that can't be explained because there isn't a kind of sense of like unstoppability. It seems very simple to solve climate change because you turn off the power plants. So why can't they be turned off? Why, why do they have this kind of magical quality? They, they insist on being kind of, um, you know, continued. Um, I think that uh, there's a very useful question here about structure and agency, about the degree to which social problems are the uh, progeny of uh, bad actors and the degree to which their problems are dynamics to which we're all conscripted, which is yeah. a central binary in, in Pistone's thinking about capitalism. Um, and I think climate change is a very good example of this. And I think it allows us also to think a bit critically about some of the ways that he, Pistone thinks about anti-Semitism um, or some of the uh, distinctions he misses, which is to say, um, one left theme now is to point out that 100 companies are responsible for 70% of global emissions. Um, and of course, the problem is that companies. It's nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Companies like, yeah. well, companies just like preserve providing uh, commodities that are bought by people all exactly. over the world. Exactly. Yeah. It's like a left form of the rights concern with Chinese yes. emissions when loads of the Chinese emissions are producing goods that are yes. sold <laughs> and, uh, you know, surplus value that's realized in, in the West uh, or even just enjoyment and utility that's realized in the West. Um, 
So a left form of that is to say, you know, if a right form is to identify uh, a, a scapegoat, which is foreign to us, which is China, a left form might be to identify a scapegoat, which is foreign to us, which is the wealthy, uh, in order to avoid posing questions about our universal conscription to a form of life um, in which we're very unequal beneficiaries and also uh, unequal causes of the problem, but nonetheless, in which we're all involved. Um, uh, we're all involved in fossil capital. Um, um, the, the, the group with which I'm involved at the Salvage Collective um, uh, has a sort of neat phrase in a book they wrote just before I, I joined the group um, that the, the tragedy, tragedy of the worker, worker yeah, yeah, the tragedy of the worker is that so long as she works for capital, she must be her own grave digger. Um, uh, we're not just digging the grave of, of, of capitalists. If, if you're a worker, you're digging your own if you're uh, living a life that is destroying the planet. So, so one can get carried away in that kind of language of universal complicity and forget that there is also the possibility to take Marm in a slightly different direction. There's also the possibility, I think, of a renewed anti-colonial politics today, um, a renewed tri-continental third worldism today on the basis of thinking um, uh, the devastation, the destruction of people's environments uh, in the Maldives going underwater um, caused not by emissions in the Maldives, but by emissions that have generated huge profits in London and New York. Um, and so, the universal complicity is not an egalitarian complicity, and there are decisions made by Shell and Chevron uh, that destroy the planet, um, and it's not just a structure into which we're all uh, blindly, uh, uh, in which we're all blindly enacting. Um, so the problem then is not any language of agency in thinking climate change, Though there might be a political problem with thinking climate change as just a problem of agency, just a problem of the hundred which is companies and not a problem of the value form of capital accumulation, which compels us to constant expansion. Um, um, and indeed, Pastone at the end of his life used climate increasingly as an example, uh, as well as financialization for thinking that the value forms a uh, uh, contradiction with, with real wealth, with, uh, with, with the conception of wealth beyond the, the constant accumulation. Um, so while there might be a problem with, 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 with narrowly agentic thinking that doesn't understand the structural dynamic, uh, one also has to make a further distinction between narrowly agentic thinking that does identify real agents who are really part of reproducing the problem versus that which identifies agents separate from the problem um, uh, ethnic ciphers, for example, or, you know, it's all the fault of China. Well, of course, China is a state committed to capital accumulation. That's, that's not a, a total climate paragon, but the, but the Sinophobic projection of China as the whole climate problem um, uh, 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 is different from just the projection of 100 global companies in that it serves to try to uh, distract from the problem in order to make us feel better about our own guilt or about the, in order to distract from uh, not just our own guilt, but the guilt of uh, the real masters of the universe. Um, and so, as I say, one has to draw a distinction, not just between thinking about structure and thinking about agency, but between thinking about real agents who are part of a social process and thinking about agents divorced from a social process um, as just absolute evil, who can therefore uh, uh, be central to a construction of a social theory, which claims to explain experiences of suffering and injustice without attentiveness to the social process that's producing the suffering and injustice, because you no longer believe you can transform that social process, but which instead constructs it as some outside actor, some cancer destroying the world, um, not the companies polluting in order to make profit, but you could imagine, um, uh, you know, evil Jews who love to pollute because, uh, because they just don't care about nature because they have no real connection to, to plants and trees, or uh, uh, evil Chinese uh, greedy people who just don't care about nature because, uh, because they can just build huge dams and destroy it all for their own uh, ambitions to global power. And so these are ways of constructing agency uh, uh, distinct from, autonomous from, even separate from um, uh, the social process in which those agents are entangled, which is, I think, meaningfully different and meaningfully worse from uh, a language of social processes that is overly agentic, but describes real agents really involved in the process. And that's a distinction that I think Pastone's analysis of anti-Semitism misses, that can allow you to say that, you know, there's not much difference between Bernie Sanders talking about the banks and the Nazis talking about Jewish bankers. Now, this is, of course, uh, to, to perhaps to be unfair, but, um, uh, but I think that one has to introduce the distinction within agentic languages of politics between those that describe agents central to social processes and those that describe projected scapegoated uh, agents in order to avoid talking about the social process at all. There's a, there's, a, there's a kind of a th when those when those uh, particular social uh, actors when those particular agents are identified they often uh, particularly the ones that are in fact irrelevant to the process yeah, exactly. um, th those ones are identified as if they were the process exactly so yeah. there's a kind of there's a kind of a, a further kind of yeah that's exactly um, right yeah and so that's yeah, where I, I think so that's to take your question like that's where I think 
climate change is actually a good example for some of the problems with some recent left thinking about anti-Semitism. We've, we've been thinking about a lot about a new group, Patriotic Alternative, Patriotic Alternative which um, I'm not sure if you're aware about. But I'm not, I'm not. They're kind of, I suppose, the fastest growing far-right group that I suppose in the tradition of the BMP are like, of the old school BMP, are like anti-Semitic and uh, quite willing to say that in quite... Uh, uh, Unkind un of mediated terms. Yeah, the, the, the leader of Patrick Alternative, a guy called Mark Collette, has said his favorite book is Mein Kampf. This is not like a, a, a closeted anti Semite in any sense. Mm. Is that, is that, there was a Mark Collette who was in the BNP? The same, same guy, same guy. Yeah, 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 same guy. He's come yeah. back. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, the BNP is actually an interesting story because it, it, they went from, I think this is telling, they went from a kind of Holocaust revisionism, uh, Nick Griffin championing uh, the likes of David Irving, through to in their moment in the sun, relatively speaking, uh, proclaiming themselves philo Semitic in the defense of white society on question time, through to as they were increasingly marginalized, accusing the EDL of being Zionists um, and, and again returning to an anti Semitism. So, anti-Semitism here on the far right as the, uh, you know, feeling of punching up, uh, the feeling of being totally marginal and, and, and identifying a conspiracy of Jews who run the world, versus those moments when the far right feels more mainstream and wants to, to, to see itself in the vanguard of the defense of white society. It can say it's defending Jews against the savage hordes, just as liberals and mainstream conservatives say. So I think there's an interesting sort of index of, uh, of the change. But sorry, yeah, definitely. And I think within the case of Griffin as well, he said at the start of their kind of electoral success that that the politics would their politics would remain the same, but the presentation would change, mm. and that didn't just refer to the we were going to wear suits now and we we're going to have big rosettes on, but also um, to you know the more fundamental stuff. Yeah, you see, I think what I'm saying is I don't think that's true. Like I think the politics changed, and I think you can trace that 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 exchange of anti-Semitism to philo-Semitism in the back end. Now, of course, philo there's the old Yiddish joke: the philo-Semite is the anti-Semite who loves Jews. Philo-Semitism is a form of anti-Semitism. If you take the kind of most basic argument I've been making about the construction of ethnic ciphers as the central move of racial thinking, philo-Semitism does that too. It projects an imagined image of the Jew, but it is nonetheless a political change. I think worth tracing from a moment of the experience of marginality where you see Jewish conspiracies running the world to a moment where you think you might be something less than marginal or something more than marginal, whatever the expression. And, um, and so you can align with white society and see yourself as the protector of Jews. Anyway, so I keep interrupting you, Alex. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, I think I've kind of forgotten my question. No, I'm so my... sorry. <laughs> it's all right. I've got it written down here. Um, okay, so we make, we make the claim in our book that um, for, the, for much of the far right, anti-Semitism is... Uh, kind of a hatred of politics itself, and an ex explanation um, for the difference between white people. The reason why there's no white solidarity is because Jews are coming in and, and, and making division or uh, shrinking the white population through replacement theories and, and such like. And the, the link between uh, uh, the Jews and conspiracy, I think, is a quite a deep one. Um, is at the bottom of all conspiracies Jewish people, or is there what's going on here? With conspiracies? Uh, no, I don't think Jews are at the bottom of all conspiracies. And I think that um, um, a certain kind of historical canon can do us some harm here because, you know, Adorno and Horkheimer famously say that the defense of Jews becomes the kind of marker for the defense of any kind of uh, decent living um, in the context of the 1930s, um, where the, the Jew is the identified um, uh, uh, projection into which the whole bundle of uh, uh, defensive anxieties about the destruction of uh, traditional white world order can be uh, assembled. Um, that was a function that Jews served in the 1930s in Germany and elsewhere. It had been the function that Jews had sometimes served in uh, under the Tsar in Russia. Um, it had been the function that Jews had sometimes served in a different way because the anxieties were different because this is a pre-capitalist age in, in medieval Europe. Um, now that's not a consistent history, sort of 2000 years of, uh, of one thing, um, uh, but, but, but Jews had sometimes served that function of the crystallization of all of these anxieties. Um, uh, I just think the world is different now. I don't think that Jews, uh, 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 there's just much more competition uh, in Western Europe and North America, for example, for, uh, you know, objects of racial angst. Um, and indeed, one of the reasons that I think we're lacking good uh, 
theories of the distinctiveness of contemporary anti-Semitism is because much of the attention of the anti-racist left has been focused elsewhere for good reason, because the chief objects of racial angst in post-war Britain, for example, were clearly not Jews. Um, very interesting kind of attempt to project back, if you think about the recent BBC series Ridley Road, for adapting the book, um, um, focusing on what was actually a very, in order to tell a history of kind of consistent anti-Semitism, focusing on what was a very small group um, a few years before the National Front much more significant than Colin Jordan's national socialist movements, whose, whose significance is kind of slightly exaggerated in the, in, in the BBC rendition, I haven't read the book, but in the BBC rendition, uh, to suggest that they were kind of launch, about to launch some armed challenge to power. Um, um, a few years later, of course, the National Front had various anti-Semitic ideas, but it wasn't central, it wasn't in the foreground. Um, and so I think we have to grapple with what it means to think the resurgence of anti-Semitism today and a moral panic about anti-Semitism in conditions where anti-Semitism is not the only or the dominant or the secret root of all forms of conspiratorial thinking. Um, it might though, if it was at one of the kind of traditional forms or if it was the founding form of some of this thinking, set a pattern through which to understand different forms of conspiratorial thinking. Um, and it set that pattern already in the 1930s for fascists talk about say Freemasons, uh, which often followed. Uh, uh, so again, racism is not always the right frame here because this is a conspiratorial uh, uh, thinking that needn't attach itself to objects defined racially. Um, some homophobia uh, follows this logic. I think some transphobia sometimes follows this logic um, of imagining uh, a, a kind of uh, a, a privileged elite group um, trying to threaten uh, the established binaries um, uh, of, uh, of traditional society. Um, so you might see how these other panics follow from a logic which was set down maybe first by anti-Semitism or maybe just most prominently by anti-Semitism without meaning that there's always a secret image of Jews lurking, um, lurking here. But that also means that even when Jews are not that materially threatened, when we're relatively comfortable in Britain today, for example, uh, it matters to think about anti-Semitism, not least for the conceptual tools that it gives to other forms of bigotry, um, as well as for the ways that it can disorganize the possibility of a genuine universalist politics and emancipatory politics, left politics, and so on. And so this is why the question of just how safe and secure Jews are is not the only question that matters in thinking about anti-Semitism. Thank you for giving so much of your time and being so interesting. Thank you so much. I'm sorry for ranting on so much. I always do this. Well, it, it makes our jobs a lot easier because we don't have to actually think of good things to say, you know. No, but I'm sorry for I keep interrupting. And anyway, this is my awful. Yeah. Anyway, okay. there's too much to say on this topic. That's the thing. There, there were definitely is, more yes. things I wanted to say about that question. Than I can't remember. But yeah, sorry. No problem. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you so much. Lovely to meet you. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed that, then you can go over to Patreon, where we now have a whole bunch of more premium episodes and essays and other things like that. We're also starting a book club for people who want to get more into this stuff. You can read along with us. We'll talk about it. We'll have regular Zoom calls. It'll be great fun. And on the higher tier, we'll even send you a copy of our two books when they drop. That's patreon.com slash 12 rules for what. All the support we get means a lot to us and it really does help us grow this project. And thanks a lot for listening again and I'll see you very soon. Hello and welcome to We Will Remember Freedom, a monthly podcast of anarchist fiction. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. Hello and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. Hello, and welcome to the jingle for both of my podcasts. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. You can find my podcasts wherever you get your podcasts or get them from the Channel Zero Network.